This is My Black Counts, a podcast series sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland, with production assistance from WYPR. everyone. Welcome to My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow within their communities. My name is Dr. Shakobi Wilson. In today's episode, we're going to discuss food justice. I know y'all just came off the holidays and you're having those New Year's resolutions and many of you are interested in like changing how you eat food and, and your relationship with food. Well, today, Get ready. We're going to talk about food and food justice issues. We're going to talk about food apartheid and the history and impact of intensive animal agriculture and talk about solutions, things that you can do in your own personal lives for your block and for your neighborhood and things we can do in greater society. Now, before we jump in, I'm going to give you a little bit more background about who I am and what I do. Again, I'm Dr. Jacoby Wilson. I'm a son of Mississippi. I'm from Vicksburg, Mississippi. So I'm a country boy from Vicksburg, Mississippi. My family were sharecroppers. So you think about, again, that connection to food. I got started in this movement because I grew up near a landfill. I grew up near a sewage treatment plant. I grew up near a major highway. I had this connection with nature as a kid. My father was a pipe fitter. And I'll share with y'all a funny story my mom just shared with me. My mom said, son, I understand part of the reason why you work on sewer and water issues because as a kid, you got potty trained in an outhouse. Y'all, I just found out last week <laughs> that my folks, my grandparents, uh, where my uh, mom and dad lived when I was a little kid, did not have running water and they didn't have indoor plumbing. So I had to use an outhouse for a few years of my life. Think about the shock of that. Learn that when you're 47 years old now. You said an outhouse. What is an outhouse? Well, basically, it's an outdoor toilet. So if you know like a latrine, it's basically a hole in the ground, usually a wooden building over top of the hole. You open the door and you would go in to use the bathroom. Many of you can liken that to when you have these porta potties. Basically, it's like a stationary porta potty, but there are many communities across the country, particularly still in the deep south, where folks don't have access, as I said before, to running water, but they don't have access to indoor plumbing. So they don't have access to advanced modern wastewater technology in their homes. They don't have a toilet that they can flush. They have to go outside to an outhouse to use the bathroom. Let that sit with everybody for a second. So you still have people today in our country and around the world who do not have access to publicly regulated sewer infrastructure. They do not have access to modern indoor plumbing. But that's a reason why I had another part of my experience when it comes to not having access to infrastructure, right, as a young person, as a toddler, and how people don't have access to sewer water infrastructure right now 
in my state of Mississippi, you know, in Jackson, Mississippi, in other parts of the country. So think about these issues. This is how I got into the environmental justice movement and didn't know that I was being impacted at even a, a younger age by environmental injustice by not having a running water and indoor plumbing. Now, I direct Siege. In Siege, we focus on community engagement, environmental justice, and health. We try to do community empowerment science, helping train residents collect their own data so they can use you know, science for action. And we also do liberation science. We want to liberate those who live in communities that are dealing with environmental, energy, and climate justice issues from living in a sacrifice zone, from the experiences of environmental racism, right? We want to make sure that they're able to have access to clean air, clean water, safe sewer, running water, public indoor plumbing, right? Access to healthy food, which is a topic of our discussion today, because many folks across the country, they don't have these things. And you should have a human right to clean air, a human right to clean water, right? A human right to safe housing, a human right to safe and healthy food. And so the purpose of this podcast, My Blog Counts, is to take a deep dive into those environmental issues that are impacting communities in the state of Maryland and other parts of the country, and particularly impacting those communities that have been invisibilized because of our policies, those communities that are dealing with historic and temporary structural or structured racism, those communities that are dealing with inequities in planning, zoning, and development, redlining, and those things that lead to poor environmental conditions, that lead to environmental injustices and climate injustices, that lead to poor health outcomes, that lead to lack of quality of life, that lead to health disparities. So we're going to talk about food justice today. When you think about food justice, it's communities exercising their right to grow, sell, and eat food that is fresh, nutritious, affordable, culturally appropriate, and grown locally, you know, with the care and well-being of land, workers, and animals. For me, food is very important. Food is wealth. Food is health. Food is power. Food is culture. You know, I always like to say that, folks, when I think about my relationship with food and the history of food in my family, Black folks are master agriculturalists before enslavement. And so when you think about food and how food is power, food sovereignty, that's something to think about. How we can have power and build community around food. The opposite of food sovereignty and opposite of food justice is food apartheid. It's a term that really talks about our broken food system and equal access to healthy food. This term was coined by elder farmer and food justice leader Karen Washington. She identified the racial and economic policies, racism, right? The practices that intentionally create communities lacking access to fresh, affordable, life-giving food. There's some terms that have been used, like food desert and food swamp to kind of describe the situation. Food deserts or neighborhoods, communities don't have access to any type of food resources in the local area, where a food swamp has been described as a location where they may have unhealthy foods, like a high concentration of fast food restaurants. Now, but food apartheid is a better term because it, it speaks to the system of food inequity resulted from structural racism and discrimination. But a lot of food justice advocates argue that the food deserts and food swamps are outside of terms that have been imposed on Black and brown communities that overlook institutionalized racism and other social economic factors. And actually, 
it otherwise is a desert. It makes it sound like you can't find food in the desert. It makes it sound like you can't find food in the swamp. So they've been imposed upon uh, communities of color. But the term food apartheid is more appropriate because it's a wider representation of the discriminatory system that focuses attention on community resilience and transformative pathways to food justice. So in other words, food apartheid acknowledges systemic decisions that have disadvantaged communities of color. It recognizes and acknowledges racism embedded in our food policies, racism embedded in our food system. And it's been caused by redlining. Y'all know redlining created segregation on the basis of race and concentrated generational poverty. This neighborhood was able to get loans and investments because of, you know, you have more whites here in this neighborhood because I have more people of color. Oh, we're not going to give you loans and investments. We're going to divest and, and disinvest. And then grocery stores left those neighborhoods. The food infrastructure left those neighborhoods, leading to supermarket redlining. And supermarket redlining is a process that was encouraged by major supermarket chains that left these neighborhoods to move out to wealthy neighborhoods. So along with the white flight that happened with redlining and segregation, you also had a, a supermarket flight where they moved from those neighborhoods that were disinvested and divested, uh, communities of color, to those wealthier neighborhoods that tend to be majority white neighborhoods. I mean, one study in Connecticut found that urban areas lacked grocery stores within a two-mile radius. Nearly 85% of the grocery stores had left the city within the 15-year period. So you see where the supermarkets went to were primarily 80% white, and only 4% were characterized as low income. So supermarkets are not located in places where you have a high concentration of people of color and a high concentration of people who may be low income. You're seeing supermarkets in more majority white and more majority high income areas. Black and brown communities that lack access to healthy food options, that lack access to grocery stores and supermarkets, are also impacted by disproportionate advertising of fast food, not just the advertising of fast food, but also they have a higher concentration of fast food restaurants. Now, one study in New Orleans found that Black communities had 2.4 times more fast food restaurants per square mile compared to 1.5 times in predominantly white areas. And they also found that Black consumers were exposed to six times more fast food chains than white consumers while food shopping. So again, you see disparities in access to supermarkets, but also disparities in the burden of fast food restaurants. Numerous studies have shown this. And then you can link these problems to our U.S. agricultural policies. You know, it's a major structural contributor to food apartheid. Lending and subsidies favor wider and more established farms. In 2020, USDA granted loans for farmland equipment to only 37% of Black applicants as compared to 71% to white applicants. But it's a big difference. And Black farm owners who in 1920 numbered 14% of all farmers have seen their numbers shrink due to disenfranchisement, racism, and discrimination in federal programs not able to get loans. These are the drivers behind why we see a food apartheid. Like I said, we have a broken food system that's biased, that discriminates against Black and brown communities, Black and brown consumers, Black and brown farmers. What's the solution? One thing we have to think about is how do we create food banks and bring farmers' markets into communities of color. Build more grocery stores that community-owned, food co-ops. We have to deal with the public campaigns 
around sweetened beverages, which contribute to diabetes in our communities, right? And so have more campaigns about healthy living, drinking more water, et cetera. We also have to look at measures to address discriminatory attitudes, policies, and practices that create and perpetuate food access disparities. That has to be prioritized. Then we have to make sure these communities are getting a new flow of capital so you can have local ownership of homes and businesses. We have to focus on wealth equality and so address uh, economic inequality and focus on wealth building to correct entrenched inequities. We have all these new dollars from the Biden administration as it relates to investing in communities. So you think about the bipartisan infrastructure law. You have the Inflation Reduction Act. Now, those things don't specifically talk about food infrastructure, but they speak to the need for investments. We have the Farm Bill. How can we make sure the Farm Bill, that more of those dollars are going to investing in agriculture in urban areas? That's important. So we got to make sure that people are getting capital infusions and making sure that we have more banks that are providing capital and lending so we can build these grocery stores, so we can have these community-owned food businesses in our urban areas where you have more people of color and more low-end populations. Another part of this transformation is to challenge the country's exploitative agricultural system dominated by corporate agriculture and intensive animal agriculture. Large industrial farms exploit the labor of Black, Indigenous people of color, other socially and economic disadvantaged segments of our U.S. population, immigrants as well, while unfairly targeting Black and brown urban neighborhoods with marketing for highly processed, nutritionally deficient foods. So we're not getting the good foods advertised in our communities. We're getting more of the lower quality foods advertised in our communities. And we have a higher abundance of those foods in our communities. And when it comes to access to healthy fruits and vegetables, many of the places that do sell those in our communities, those things tend to be more expensive. But we do have this burgeoning, this growing, this very mature, in many ways, food justice movement. You can go to West Oakland in California. Go to the South Bronx in New York. Look at what's happening in Detroit, uh, in Milwaukee, in Philadelphia, all across the country. You have folks of color who are creating local and sustainable food systems. One example is Soul Fire Farm. It's an Afro-Indigenous center community farm in Petersburg, New York, committed to uprooting racism and seeding sovereignty in the food system. Their food sovereignty program reaches over 160,000 people each year, including farmer training for black and brown growers, reparations, and land return initiatives for Northeast farmers, food justice workshops, for urban youth, home gardens for city dwellers living under food apartheid, doorstop harvest delivery for food insecure households, and systems and policy education for public decision makers. You have the Chicago Land Food Sovereignty Coalition, CFSC. It's a coalition of autonomous mutual aid groups working to reimagine a resilient, sustainable, and equitable local food system based on food sovereignty. And now this pandemic, you know, COVID-19 has vividly revealed how broken the national and regional and local food systems are. These systems are predicated on over-industrialized foods. I like to call them just crap foods, call them what they are. Waste, profit, going out to large companies, corporate integrators, multinational corporations, and food apartheid. 
These brutal and also fragile systems are not sustainable and for too long have been managed by power brokers and policymakers instead of everyday people, many who don't have access to healthy and nutritious food, many people who are dealing with food hunger, people dealing with starvation, right? So CFSC is working to build a food system rooted in radical love rather than profit, unlocking the abundance for all people, unlocking the potential of all people. That's Again, that's that power, the empowerment we've been talking about, I empowerment. You also have the Detroit Black Community Food Security Network. Now, since 2008, DBCFSN, I just call it a network, has operated D-Town Farm the largest in Detroit's many gardens and farms. The farm occupies slightly more than seven acres inside the Myers Tree Nursery in the city of Detroit's Rouge Park. Detail Farm is maintained by small staff and volunteers who grow more than 30 different fruits, vegetables, and herbs each year using sustainable regenerative methods. So when it comes to solutions to these issues, we got to focus on urban agriculture. When we think about food justice and dismantling food apartheid in the U.S., we got to think about regenerative agriculture. We got to think about community-driven agriculture, food co-ops, right? We got to make sure we're doing agriculture where it's driven by the people, but we're also doing wealth creation, ownership, wealth creation. So how do you build a healthy community ecosystem? At the heart of it is food and food justice. Now that we have a good understanding of food apartheid and the food justice movement. Let me talk about another part of food apartheid in our country. Let's talk about concentrated animal feeding operations. C-A-F-O's, CAFOs is how we pronounce it. What are CAFOs? The farms that confine large numbers of animals. Could be hogs, could be chickens and cattle in small areas without natural vegetation. Over the past half century, Farming has changed from like, you know, your grandma and grandpa, you know, family farming to large industrial animal agriculture. You know, you have big industries like petrochemical industry, right? You have these big facilities where you're producing products. Well, this is the same thing. It's industrialized animal production. And the same when you look at other industries. This is not, again, your mom and pop, grandma and grandpa farming. This industry has grown rapidly. Over the last 50 years, moving from small family farms to these larger operations because of global demand for meat. And that's a very relevant point for climate change. And I'm going to talk about that more. And then how it impacts your neighborhood and how it impacts your block. I know I said we're coming off of the holiday when the new year, meaning you're going to have New Year's resolutions. Well, after you get through hearing what I'm talking about, you may have some New Year's resolution when it comes to how you interact with food and particularly how you interact with meat. Independent farms have become less common with many farming businesses now being run by national, you know, big multinational corporations. Think about it. From 1935 to 2012, the number of farms in the U.S. decreased by over two thirds, while the average farm size has almost tripled. So we have fewer farms but bigger farms. And when you have a confinement of animals on these operations, they're usually confined for about 45 days. And this building with no vegetation, no greenery. Y'all know animals were not meant to be in these big houses, basically in pens, 
call them pig pens. You had mechanized production in tandem with contractual arrangements between producers and processors, which led to us moving away from traditional agriculture to this industrial agriculture. And these CAFOs have a major impact on the environment and human health. Research has shown that many low-income communities of color are disproportionately burdened by the negative environmental effects and health effects of CAFOs. One study showed by Kerry and Schultz that pollutants including ammonia, hydrogen sulfide, methane, in particular matter, can increase health risks. Other studies have shown that schools and neighborhoods uh, near these factory farms, children who go to these schools, live in these neighborhoods, have higher rates of asthma. Also says they've shown exposure to the vault organic compounds increases the burning of the eyes, nose, and throat, or more incidents associated with uh, fatigue, anger, and headaches. Other studies have shown that exposure to particular matter and suspended dust, so think about the dust in the air, been linked to asthma and bronchitis. Remember, particular matter can get into your circulatory system and go to different organs in your body and lead to systemic effects, including cardiac arrest. Other studies have shown that Exposure to these compounds can lead to damage to the lungs and also nasal allergies. Additional studies have shown that it could increase uh, rates of hypertension and also impact immune functioning. So you have these impacts on air quality. You have impacts on water quality. Many of these operations, you can have runoff of the fecal waste. We call use the term chicken litter, right? But chicken litter is basically fecal waste. You can have runoff into rivers and streams. Many of the people who live near these operations own well water. So think about if it's windblown fecal matter from the chicken manure piles, it can get into that well water. If you think about the industrial hog farms, they store the waste in what we call uh, lagoons. It's basically pits in the ground. For those of you who are old to remember the movie Blue Lagoon, it's not a lagoon you want to swim in. It's a lagoon that's filled with hog waste. And so they take the liquid off the top of the lagoon and they spray it on spray fields. And then they can use a, a solid waste and some of that gets applied to the land. But if you have runoff from the lagoons, it can lead to impacts on water quality. Because again, most of the folks who live in rural areas are on well water. So you can get things like nitrates in the well water. Also can be exposed to bacteria like E. coli, Campylobacter, and other bacteria that can impact human health. So you have these impacts, again, on air quality, these impacts on water quality, and impacts on human health from exposure to the air pollutants, uh, the water contaminants, and also uh, microbes. There's another issue when you think about industrial animal agriculture. It's climate change. You may ask, like, what does climate change have to do with these animals? Well, I'll tell you. Globally, livestock operations are responsible for approximately 18% of greenhouse gas uh, emissions and over 7% of emissions in the U.S. So carbon dioxide, as you know, is one of the primary greenhouse gases emitted. But manure emits methane and nitrous oxide, which are 23 and 300 times more potent as greenhouse gases than carbon dioxide. 
So we have industrial animal agriculture. It's not just impacting air quality, water quality, and causing problems with human health. These emissions can contribute to climate change. So remember, you have things like nitrates, carbon dioxide, methane, and particular matter. They're important for impacts on the environment, but very important when you think about contributions to climate change. And then you think about other parts of the food industry, food complex, industrial complex. It's not just the farms where you have the hens laying eggs or not just the farms where you have the hogs and their pens in the houses. You also think about the processing plants, the meat packing plants. A 2020 survey found that nearly 50% of all meat packing workers in the U.S. were Hispanic, while nearly 24% were African-American. In total, over 50% were immigrants. So you're saying not just environmental injustice in the impacts of these operations on local communities, but also when you think about who are the populations who work at the facilities, at the meatpacking facilities. They got minimum pay, extremely long hours. They don't get breaks, not able to unionize. They get tedious tasks. It's a hostile work environment. And they have an increased risk of physical injury. And so you got a high rate of job turnover in this industry, as high as 84%. So that's a big issue. So it's not just you know, when you think about environmental justice, you also have occupational justice issues. For folks who work in the farms, who work at the meatpacking facilities, you see issues with respiratory problems. And think about COVID-19. How is COVID-19 relevant for folks working in these meatpacking facilities? Well, in the early days of the pandemic, the livestock and meat industry uh, consolidation nearly collapsed the supply chain. That's one problem. But then you had exposure and health issues for the workers. At least 259 Meat processing workers died from COVID-19 after the employers failed to provide safe working conditions. And animals were cruelly killed and farmers had no market for the livestock. The poor working conditions, they came before the COVID-19 pandemic. And they were already at risk of, you know, having poor health outcomes. But with the exposure to SARS-CoV-2 and those poor working conditions, that's been a deadly mix for a lot of workers who work at these meatpacking facilities. Let's just talk about how much waste they produce. Remember I said before, this is not your grandma and grandpa's farm where they have a few hogs that are out in the pasture and just running around or a few chickens. They're doing what chickens do. They're out on the farm, open and free range. These animals are in confined spaces. They're basically in buildings. And some of you may drive through eastern North Carolina and see the hog houses, the big exhaust fan. That's a hog house. Some of you may be driving through Eastern Shore, Maryland, or Southern Delaware, and see these long, shiny aluminum buildings, maybe one, two, three, four, five, no, 10 or more, 15 or more. Say, like, what is that? That's a chicken farm, okay? And you may see the exhaust fans. These facilities produce a lot of waste. So annually, it's estimated that livestock animals in the U.S. produce each year between three and 20 times more manure. Y'all know what manure is, than people in the U.S. produce in total. That's 1.2 to 1.37 billion tons of waste. That's a lot of waste, folks. And remember, when you flush your toilet, your waste goes to a sewage shipping plant. Unless, as I said earlier, you live in some parts of the South where you may have an outhouse or you live in places like Lowndes County, Alabama, when your waste gets straight piped onto the ground or you live in Uniontown, Alabama, goes to a containment pond, and they spray human waste on the ground. 
So some parts of the country, they spray and waste on the ground for humans, just like we spray for animals. But that's a lot of waste that's not been treated. That's my point. This is industrial farming. This is not family farming. Manure production ranges from 2,800 tons to 1.6 million tons, with some farms producing significantly more waste than some U.S. cities. Yes, there's some cities that have problems with their wastewater treatment systems, but at least they have a system. In the case of these animal operations, they don't have a system. Remember I said before, they have a lagoon, and these lagoons always leak, so they can leak into groundwater. And then think about a lot of the groundwater recharges the well water, so you can have contamination from the groundwater into the well water. You can have runoff from these lagoons into well water. You can have runoff from lagoons or the chicken manure piles into rivers and streams, which can lead to fish kills, which can lead to increases in the levels of bacteria in those waterways. And so if people are trying to fish and swim in those waterways, they can be exposed to bacteria and chemicals due to the runoff from these factory farms. One study by Casanova in 2020 found that hog CAFOs had antibiotic-resistant bacteria, including salmonella, that put nearby communities at risk. Large farms can produce more waste than uh, some U.S. cities. Feeding operation with 800,000 pounds could produce over 1.6 million tons of waste a year. In North Carolina, for example, Sampson and Dublin County alone account for about 40% of all the pigs and hogs raised in the state of North Carolina. At one point in time, Dublin County raised more hogs than any other county in the whole country. Each year in North Carolina, farmers raise more than 500 million chickens and turkeys compared to approximately 9 million hogs. So you had 8 million hogs raised in 2021 and about 71 million chickens raised in 2021. The Waterkeeper report estimates that North Carolina poultry farms produce about 5 million tons of waste annually, about five times more waste with about five times more nitrogen and four times uh, more phosphorus than hog farms. So yes, hog farms are a big problem in North Carolina, but chicken farms produce five times more waste. So you got to think about the vast amount of liquid manure and urine <laughs> that's being generated. Hopefully, y'all don't have sensitive ears out there. We're talking about waste. You know, I am a poopologist. Just to let y'all know, I did my dissertation on industrial hog farms in North Carolina. So I know a lot about waste. I know a lot about hog farms. I know a lot about intensive animal agriculture. And so 10 billion gallons a year that's produced in North Carolina gets dumped in unlined lagoons. These are toilets that don't flush. So think about if you have a rain event. What happens to lagoons? You have runoff. Think about if you have a hurricane. Like Hurricane Florida in 1999, a Hurricane Florence more recently, uh, several years ago, that dumped 11 trillion gallons of rain in North Carolina. What happened to these farms? In both occasions, animals drowned in the waterways. You had overflow of lagoons and you had contamination of local waterways and community well water. So these are big issues when you think about environmental injustice, when you think about the connections with climate change, and you think about our addiction to meat, the role that we play in consumers and supporting the industry that is polluting our environment, that is causing environmental injustice, that is leading to poor health outcomes. And remember, it's not just the environmental impacts of these operations. If you live in a community that hosts an industrial hog farm, you may have an aunt or uncle or other relative that lives in the community 
that hosts an industrial chicken farm, it impacts them economically too. Property values go down. They can't sell their homes. They can't escape. And it's not just the health impacts, it's the quality of life impacts. They've been exposed to odoriferous compounds every day, ammonia and hydrogen sulfide. They cannot enjoy that property. People can't go outside the garden. They can't go outside the barbecue. They can't invite family members over. Remember, at nighttime, a lot of the plumes move from these operations and they can infiltrate in people's homes. People have to keep their windows closed. They can't turn their AC on because the force fields of funk, I'm going to say it that way, can come into their homes. So these are major nuisance issues. These are major trespass issues. When you think about the odor, when you think about the negative impacts on human health, when you think about the impacts of the fact that people can't escape, they can't leave, they can't enjoy their homes, they can't enjoy their well water, they can't enjoy the idyllic rural life that we are all accustomed to having in America. If you live in a community that's been impacted by industrial animal agriculture, you're living in a community that's dealing with environmental oppression, environmental injustice, and going to be dealing with environmental disparities this is my blog counts an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow in their communities thank you for joining us see you next time dr wilson out you've been listening to my blog counts my Block Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Ariel Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. Additional information about My Block Counts can be found at ceejh.center or wypr.org. New episodes of My Block Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review.